Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law, and my co-host, who is not in the room with me, but is coming to you through the magic of the internet, uh, we're all together, we're all together in spirit that way, is Ellie Mistal. I'm in my basement, and it is hot as balls. I just, I don't even understand this weather. We are, well, I mean, I understand it, it's... um. It's the summer, and you're, you're a yeah, meteorologist yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, enough to understand how heat works. I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't propose to know what a high pressure system does, but aren't basements supposed to be cooler? Like heat rises, right? Heat does rise, and I'm, and you know, I mean, I, I'm not no, having a comparison. My guess is your upstairs might even be warmer. There's certainly more children upstairs, so probably yes, warmer. Yeah, exactly. So, with that said. Uh, how have you been? You've, you've not been here for a while. I yeah. Um, sorry, our listeners. Uh, it's been a while since we've recorded. Um, I've been a little bit ill, um, but I am back on the men and back in the race. So we're gonna kick up the recording schedule now. So yeah. So this is the part where I'm supposed to generally uh, bitch and complain about something, and you know I can do that. I've got things that anger me, but I gotta say, Joe, I'm just you know I'm hollowed out. I'm hollowed out. Um, yeah. You figure. My job is to professionally communicate. Well, my job is to communicate, and I try to do that professionally. Um, I mean, yeah, and you try. <laughs> exactly. I try. Yeah. More or less, I try. Um, but I, I don't know how to explain um, anymore what it's like just being a black person in this country and feeling like honestly being afraid to go out your house. You know, one thing I thought of in preparing for this podcast and to talk about this was – you know, we do a lot of victim blaming in this country, and not all of it is bad. Some victim blaming we do out of just the natural and honest desire to to make ourselves different from bad things that we see happen, right? We see, we see badness in the world, and we think like, oh, well, that's not going to happen to me because I'm this, because I'm that, because I didn't go down that dark alley, or I or I don't break the law or I don't, you know, so th- some of that victim blaming comes actually from a place of, of self-defense as opposed to a bad place. And, and I think that the thing that the reason why I feel so hollowed out is that I kind of can't get over the image of Flando Castile because, you know, Joe, they, they shot him with his kid in the back, you know, with, yeah. with a four year old in the car. And, and for all the other people, all the other videos that we've seen, you know, that's the one that hits me because, like, that's I also need to drive around white suburbs with my four year old in the back seat. And, you know, you can't even be safe doing that. If I can't, if, if Philando Castile can't even be safe doing that, then I can't even be safe doing that. And the, and the reality is that, and then nobody can be safe doing that. It's not just black people. You know, lots of statistics show that the cops, the cops are going to shoot. X amount of people, right? If you're twice as likely to be stopped by the cop, you're twice as likely to be shot by the cop. But that doesn't mean that, you know, every, but every police interaction for everybody carries with it a certain, to me, unacceptable risk. And yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm out of words to, I'm out of words to explain that to people. I mean, actually, I'm going to go and disagree with one thing you said. Importantly, I don't think you're out of words. The, 
for <laughs> any, and and this is in a good way. I, I I've been doing some of the editing of what you've been putting out, and I you've been on uh, you've had kind of a I don't know like a, a series I suppose we'll call it. Unfortunately, it was a it wasn't a designed series, but you're kind of set of the last four or five articles on this subject have been, uh, they're over at ATL Redline, if anybody if anybody wants to go read them, have been really good about hitting on a lot of these issues. So you haven't run out of words, at least not as of yesterday night. Well, thanks yeah, for that. So, so there is, that's still going. Well, let's transition. I know it's a, I know it's a hard segue, but, but here, I'll, I'll, I'll drag you through the segue, at least as it works in my mind. I am, like I said, hollowed out talking about cops and death. But you know what we don't get to talk about very much anymore? Money. Joe has had the ability, the joy, the pleasure um, to be kind of a number one covering um, the recent set of big law raises. Now, from my perspective, the first big law raise happened the day that I was put in the hospital and then cops went crazy, and then people went crazy against cops. So I actually haven't had a chance to really just wrap myself in the oogobs of money raining down on, on my former colleagues in big law. And I would love to talk about that for 20 minutes. So yeah, the issue that's happened uh, to catch everyone up, not that I don't think anyone who listens to us doesn't know this, but the big firms have issued raises, and then a after Cravath did it, for their associates, the uh, rest of the universe more or less started falling in line. And so now every firm was falling all over themselves, giving out more money. And that's where we are. And that was what created a lot of work last month. And we kind of wanted to take stock of where we are with that today. Um, so our guest today is Professor William Henderson. Um, he is a law professor at Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Um, he's also the chief strategy officer for Lawyer Metrics. And I mean, if you know anything about the legal space, Bill Henderson is the guy to talk to about lawyer economics, about law school economics, about the, the business of um, the legal profession. And so we're so honored to have him on today. How are you doing, Bill? Great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Joe has a version of this question. Um, I just want to start at the very kind of macro level. When you first heard Cravath raise associate salaries and raise the entire associate salary scale, what was kind of your initial reaction to that? Uh, it wasn't shock in, in, in any way because uh, Cravath and the New York market have completely different economics than the rest of uh, uh, big law. And I thought, well, perhaps it's about uh, time. I had heard some uh, uh, rumblings going back at least a couple of years where the New York uh, market really um, uh, felt like uh, it needed to be proactive in terms of attracting uh, A-level uh, uh, talent. Uh, uh, some of the law firms in the New York market have been following the decline in law school admissions and, and, and looking at it from a supply chain point of view. They said, are we going to have enough of the A-grade talent? And so uh, the very top of the market got proactive and just said, well, there's a limited supply of the people that we want, so we're going to be aggressive and we're going to go to 180. Uh, and there, there's probably maybe uh, 15 or 20 firms that could have and should have followed it, but it, it cascaded throughout the United States into the Midwest, into the South, and, and into some pretty irrational places. Then dogs and cats started living together, and mass hysteria <laughs> broke out. I, 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 
I have drawn a lot of ire from people all over the country. And by all over the country, I mean outside of New York. Because I needed that kind of stamp of approval on what I've been saying. I've been like, there's no argument in the universe that someone in Dallas should be making the same amount of money as a Cravath associate in New York. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been insane. And I've actually, this is a question that, you know, draws out of that. Do you think that the fact that all these people have been raising is going to have serious repercussions and maybe even maybe even lead to another set of raises in New York or more bonuses there or something? Because I'll say I talked to a Cravath source yesterday who was saying that all of their laterals, all the people who are like saying, oh, you know what, I'm leaving now are all going to those sorts of markets. It's not like they're going to other New York firms. It's somebody going, well, shit, I, I'm from Dallas. I'm going back to Dallas. Uh, that's that's actually been going on for uh, a fairly significant period of time. Some of the uh, law firms that I worked with talk about uh, poaching New York talent as they come, go back to uh, the Midwestern markets or they come back to the the Southeast or the Southwest uh, markets outside of the you know the New York uh, or you know the West Coast. And so that's been going on for a while. But I can see how it makes even more sense now because they've they they've matched it across the U.S. It, uh, so it just adds further economic logic. Hey, 180 goes a long way. Or, you know, if you're a mid-level associate and you're in Dallas and they've followed that uh, pay scale, I mean, you're living on a quarter of a million bucks. I mean, it's it's pretty rich. Is that an argument then that Cravath lowballed the market, right? No. So expand on that because it seems to me like if every firm can just so easily follow Cravath, maybe Cravath didn't set the scale high enough where it would be painful for these firms to try to keep up. Well, here's what's different is is that uh, say you go back to 2006, 2005, almost a quarter of law school graduates were going to what we call big law, going to an AMLAW 200 uh, firm. And uh, that was the first time where – well, it was the first time the data was produced that showed what the entry-level salary markets were. And it produced what was called the bimodal distribution. Uh, Jim Leipold and now his organization put that out. And I was at the ABA the summer of 2008, I think 2006 or 2007, uh, when that graphic was produced for the first time. I go, oh, my God, I couldn't believe what I saw because a labor market – it does not clear with two humps, like a, a group of people making 50, uh, 40 to 50,000, another group of people that were making at the time, it was between 125 and 140. And it was this massive hump. And so this is a labor market in meltdown. And actually, that was the point uh, about which I began to think about starting lawyer metrics, because I knew that uh, the labor market was completely out of whack. You, we were paying too much for some people, and we were paying not enough for others. From the first time I saw that chart, the by modal salary distribution curve. From the first time I saw that chart, I said, this is the most important chart in legal education. It's it's an amazing graph. I mean, not to get all nerdy on you people, but like, and it's exactly because of what Bill said. It's an amazing graph because no graph should look like that. <laughs> no, no. And actually, actually, Greg Malkin, uh, an economist at Harvard who writes all these uh, these microeconomic uh, uh, books or these economic textbooks for the 101 level, blogged about it. And he said labor markets shouldn't clear like this. And he found it remarkable <laughs> that uh, that you know when you when you get somebody who who is in a uh, presidential cabinet level economist that's right. talking about it, yeah. <laughs> So the argument that Cravath isn't lowballing is is because of the curve. No, no. Here's what's different. That mode has been melting for quite a long time, which means that yes, some people are getting paid 180, but it's it's a smaller percentage 
of the market, uh, and uh, it's down to about 5 or 6%. And so the way a Chicago firm copes is they just hire fewer entry-level people. So you have these much smaller classes of people that are making 180. Uh, it's generally speaking much more skewed toward the T14 uh, schools. And the firms, foolishly, to my mind, especially outside the New York market, because the New York market, uh, they'll hire you at 180, they'll work you like a dog, and the clients will pay because they're working on deals where, hey, the price of hiring Cravath or Sullivan and Cromwell is, is that you pay for these domain experts wrapped together with these associates. And yeah, the associates are overpaid, but hey, you're getting Cravath, you're getting Davis Polk, you're getting uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. And the firm, their leverage model still works. But uh, you go down the, the big law chain and increasingly they're trying to fill their associate ranks from a lateral market. And fewer and fewer people are, are, are becoming entry-level associates, which means that the lateral market is very, very thin. And it's, this is what's most deleterious about this whole dynamic is, is that the profession is aging because we have fewer entry-level people entering the corporate bar and they're just engaged in musical chairs uh, as mid-levels because there's too few of them. And uh, because the firms don't want to pay the freight, train them and pay them as entry level. So they just poach them at year three or four. Well, if everyone does that, you've got the systemic problem. So New York can afford to do this. I'll go on record on this. The market is not broken in New York City. It's broken for the firms outside of New York. You know, for you know, 15 firms, whatever we could just say, you know, maybe throw in a, a Chicago firm and a West Coast firm, two <laughs> West Coast firms, and, and that's it. They belong in that stratosphere. The rest of them, not so much. The obvious transition, though, is from your other um, um, kind of base of expertise. Um, what should a prospective law student be thinking about? How should they be looking at these salary numbers? I mean, you you previewed it perfectly. Um, when salary information first started being widely reported, we saw a huge spike in law school applications because people follow the money. Um, now that we're finally, for the first time in you know, 10, 11 years, seeing another spike in lawyer salaries – is that going to lead to an increase in law school applications? Should it? No. I Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> there's the, you, you know, uh, above the law didn't exist in the same way uh, going back 10 years. I don't know the exact start date, but you guys do a pretty good job of educating the entire market uh, uh, regarding uh, giving it a reality check. I don't think it's Aww. going to uh, happen. And uh, uh, even the New York Times covers this beat. Elizabeth Olson has done a nice job covering uh, this. I don't think it's going to overheat. Uh, I can tell you this. The students that I teach at Indiana uh, are so much more apprised of the risk they're taking. Uh, they, uh, they're they there because they want to be uh, lawyers. And to a certain extent, they understand they need to be more creative. And we're a tier one you know, public law school, but, but we're by no means feeding this uh, 180 market. Maybe 5% of my students might uh, end up uh, there. I would characterize my students as pretty realistic. They're, they're making their own way, not necessarily dependent upon big law at all. That's a hopeful message. I like that. Yeah. And in law school, there's, there's a lot fewer law school graduates right now. We're, we're down to about uh, 36,000 a year. That's probably still too much to get absorbed in bar license required jobs. But what I've been surprised to see is the students kind of landing on their feet in this JD advantaged market where you know you you actually are a better thinker, a better communicator with the with law degree. I don't know if it justifies the uh, the tuition you paid, uh, but these people find their way in uh, uh, in life. I don't know if they'll repay all their loans, but that's the federal government's problem, you know. <laughs> but 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you got to have some hustle to you. Yes, yes. And uh, a few people that are, you know, uh, one of the things I cover uh, in my research and that and I spend some of my time at Lawyer Metrics doing is tracking the rise of this, uh, these new legal entrepreneurs and a rise of managed services. And I think that uh, over the next five years, you're going to see kind of models that begin to exist astride big law that some people are going to find more attractive. Uh, uh, it's much more driven by, um, by efficiency, by innovation, uh, much more role for creativity and collaboration. The pay will be capped at something like a, a, a kind of a high engineer's pay, uh, but you're going to see a kind of a more mechanized kind of um, a technical class of, of legal professionals many of which won't go to court, uh, but they'll very much be building systems to solve legal uh, problems. I've touched upon this in a couple of articles I wrote for the ABA Journal. but That was actually going to be my next question, but I, I want to frame it this way. So I've long been an advocate for the kind of two-tiered approach to legal hiring. And I know like, I get slammed as being an elitist when I say this, but you have like one kind of class of associate, the 180 associate, the partner track associate that's being kind of trained and groomed and learning how to make it rain. And then you have a different class of associate, the maybe $80,000 a year associate, the in-source associate, if you will, who is being trained and groomed to be a service partner, who is being trained and groomed. Yes, you're going to grind some hours. You're not going to get paid as much as the, the princeling who is being groomed for partner, but you're going to be able to have a job. You're going to be able to have a career. You're going to be able to do work and you're going to be able to build skills so that eventually if you have that spirit, you can move out and start your own practice. That's one model. The other model I think is more, sorry, that's one solution. The other solution I think is more going towards what you're talking about, a more kind of, I don't want a technocratic kind of situation, the more kind of Uber for law kind of situation where we increasingly use technology to perform a lot of low level legal functions or to empower an individual lawyer to kind of have the reach of a much larger um, group of low level people using technology. Um, which one do you like better? Which way do you think we're going? Uh, I think that both frames that you set up are heading toward the same place. The first one with the, with the kind of the two tracks of, of lawyers is being adopted by the large uh, uh, law firms. I don't think it's particularly successful. Uh, there's ways to make it better. Uh, but I've seen that solution being put in place. And by the way, this stuff goes on in a way that's not publicized very often. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the road talking to people, and they just say, we don't want people to know what we're doing. We think this is a competitive advantage. There's more innovation going on, uh, even in big law, than people might uh, realize. In the managed services space, that more technocratic space here, that is going on. But we call it low-level. Uh, 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 it's characterized in a way that the work is is boring or demeaning. That's not what I've found. I've I've visited hmm. Council on Call. I've visited United uh, Lex. Uh, I've talked to the people at Axiom. Those people are passionate about their job. They're very skilled uh, lawyers. And one of the most interesting things about that model is that it's built around a contract hour. And so if they want you to work 42 or 43 hours a year, first of all, you don't have to give them that extra three hours if you don't <laughs> want. But if you do, you, they actually, they actually, you actually have to pay for it. And, it, and, and it's led to this massive rise uh, 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 project management and process improvement, which, which means that the entire enterprises are highly effective. 
efficient. Now, Axiom and Council on Call and United Lex and a few others, they're built to scale. They're backed by private equity. They're backed by venture capital. And they're, they don't have the same conflict constraints of big law. And uh, the people that work in those organizations might make, uh, they're, they're going to tip into the six-figure salary, but they actually have work-life balance. They actually feel like uh, like they're working in a highly collaborative environment. Uh, the office politics have, have been bled out because they have first-rate leadership and management, true organizational vision. And um, I've been very impressed uh, by those folks and, you know, and it's the PE folks that funded this. I mean, this is smart money that has funded this, and they've got a lot of running room. And so, so one thing I want to just go back to the big law and just touch on one thing. If I'm going to advise big law on how to do this, because generally speaking, clients would prefer that big law change as opposed to buy from these new legal entrants. But the thing is, is that you you can't ex ante pick who should be on the kind of the 80 track and who should be on the 180 track. There's a lot of people that went to a T14 law school that actually would be happier uh, working in a more service-oriented environment, but who can turn down 180? And they have the re- resume for the 180, but they, they're, they're really meant to be on a more service track. And, and there's many people at regional law schools that may not have the pedigree to get into the kind of the equity uh, track, but they'll work like crazy. Uh, they have tremendous uh, passion and desire. They're self-directed learners, and, and they will eventually end up equity partners with their own client base. And the firms, the sh- you, so you should have a permeable barrier between those two groups. Let the people move from one track to another and, and don't have an upstairs, downstairs mentality. And if you do that, you know, you're, you're really setting up some poisonous organizational dynamics. In my I opinion. Like that point more. I mean, one thing about that actually that, that's interesting is so one reason why a lot of people in T14 who might prefer going to the different model, one reason they don't is they walk out and say, I can't afford to do that because yes. of my debt. Uh, is there some risk that this, you know, round of salary increases, it kicks off law schools increasing tuition and just makes that exacerbates that problem. I, I don't know. I, I think generally speaking, you know, most law schools are running a deficit. Again, this is an undercovered uh, phenomenon. Uh, uh, universities have been backstopping them. There's some law schools. My present one included, we've got an endowment and we've got a, a rainy day fund that can carry us through. But the economics are starting to make everybody uh, sweat. The way the economics work, it's not so much uh, tuition going up, it's just the amount of discounts you need to offer to fill your class. And so uh, uh, in most law schools, uh, uh, they're going to be, if they can be, they're going to be a little less generous with uh, merit-based financial aid. And so, uh, But if a law school does have the, the economic power to uh, raise tuition, it will do that. Most of us are running deficits right now. And so uh, that's an undercovered story uh, that uh, you know law schools are, and then you move further down the food chain, and some law schools are, 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 are figuring out how to cover their bills. So uh, and we're a pretty long way away for, for, for law schools having the market power to kind of generate a profit again like they have in the past, but we're pretty far off. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I no tragedy there. <laughs> it's a market correction that's going to take about 12 years to play out. That's your timeline, you think? Yeah, I, it's going to be a while. I mean, no university provost wants to pull the plug on their law school. Yeah, well, for as you said, for a long time they were a cash cow, and they're not that anymore, but there's still a prestige, there's still a prestige department in the university system. 
Um, yes. And I think that will motivate lots of schools to keep their law schools running by hook or by crook. The danger to me are the unsupported law schools, right? The law schools that are not attached to a larger supportive um, university system. Um, the ones that really have to, like you say, have to kind of make rent every month. Those guys might might be in might be in a different kind of trouble. Yes, yes, yes. This is what's so well. Uh, so stark uh, uh, about about this uh, 180 pay scale. It really only it's it's in the very rarefied you know uh, 90210 kind of like problem. You know it's it's <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a, kind of the rest of us that kind of live in kind of greater LA you know so to speak. Uh, you know the economics are much much different. And actually uh, today I'm headed off to do a function for uh, a state bar association. One of the slides I'll put up is the aging bar. And so we have all these law school graduates that are cranked out every single year and fewer and fewer of them uh, end up as licensed members of the bar. And so there's a paradox going on. How can we graduate all these law school graduates and the demographics of the bar actually getting older? They should be getting younger because we have record numbers of law graduates, at least from historical levels. Uh, But people graduate from their law school and they go on to become colonists uh, for new media conglomerates and things (laughs) like that. Or, or, or become law professors that run research companies, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. Um, no, that's, that's, that's an interesting, so what do you think, I guess to close then, because it's a, it's a point that I hadn't thought of. What do you think that means long term for the profession? That even in this time of kind of oversupply of young lawyers, we're seeing it age up. Does that make it harder to change? Does that make it harder to interact with millennials? Does that make it harder for the firms going forward to interact with millennial clients, with the Uber and and the Twitter's clients of the world? Yeah, I, I, my answer to all those questions you just asked is yes. All these pressures are building, but there's going to be a new model that takes place. It's going to be kind of a. Um, it, it's going to, as Paul Lippi has is said to me, and I think he's right. Is this new model will emerge and it will look obvious? Will look myself, of course, you know. But it hasn't <laughs> quite emerged yet. Now, one thing I, I'll give lawyers credit for. Between competitiveness and conservativeness, they're they're both they're both competitive and conservative. But competitiveness wins, and so when the back is up against the wall here, lawyers are generally speaking going to figure out a better way to do things. And actually, I'll go a little bit uh, further: is that uh, I think lawyers, you know, we make fun of ourselves, and, and and the public makes fun of us. But generally speaking, it's a value based group. Uh, it's not a perfect group, but but by and large, we figure out how to do the right thing in the long run. And uh, and I think there, there's going to be a reset. It's going to take place. Like I said, what twelve years, or we're probably five years into a twelve year fix. Uh, but we're headed to a better place. Uh, I'm proud to be a law professor, but uh, we're gonna, we're going to be graduating legal professionals, not uh, uh, not necessarily you know courtroom lawyers. And so legal problems aren't going away. They're going to be solved with technology, with teams. It's, it's, it's we're headed to a different place. I think it's going to be mostly better, and so I'm not I'm not pessimistic at all. You know, let's leave it with that with that little cup of optimism. <laughs> Trump is going to win. He's going to make legal work <laughs> the best, beautiful legal work for all of us. Um, no matter what kind of law we practice, <laughs> well, that is really optimistic. But uh, we won't go there. <laughs> Um, let's leave it there. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, r- really good insight and really good knowledge for our listeners. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be in here. Yeah, so 
if you aren't listening to this as a subscriber, you should subscribe. That would help. You should also give reviews on whatever service you subscribe through to uh, help us out. You can read what we write at Above the Law and ATL Redline. We have Twitter handles and all that stuff that you can also find there. That's pretty much everything I usually say at the end of these shows, right? Pretty much. Yeah. All right. And with that, we'll uh, we'll be back soon and talk about more probably almost assuredly not nearly as economic-based stuff. So uh, those of you who don't work in big law and were depressed by some of the numbers we were saying, don't worry, we'll have another episode for you soon. Got to catch them all. Yeah. (laughs) The episodes. The episodes. (laughs) Yeah. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.